In the fourth chapter of Luke, we are taken to one of the most desolate places on the face of the earth. It's called the Judean wilderness or the Judean desert. This terrible wilderness is called in scripture Jeshimon, which means devastation. Devastation. It was such a desolate, rocky, and monotonous wasteland. It was full of deep ravines and crevices. Then a surrealistic painting done by Salvador Dali, he called it anti-Eden. Anti-Eden. The Judean wilderness is everything the Garden of Eden was not. And it's into this anti-Eden that according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was thrust or impelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit thrust Jesus into this wilderness for a battle of cosmic proportions. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 4, we read about this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, literally, if you bow down before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him up to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this very important and crucial passage of Scripture this morning about the temptation of Jesus, Father, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds as well. And so we see how Jesus resisted these severe temptations, Father, that we will learn more of him, but also learn something of ourselves and how we can resist temptation in the like manner as Jesus did through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see, first of all, that what occurs in this anti-Eden, this wilderness, takes place under God's direction. It's under God's direction, and Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and that the temptation was arranged by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1 again. Notice that Luke tells us in verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that is the Jordan River. Jesus immediately left the Jordan River, where he'd been baptized by John, where the Holy Spirit descended as a dove and remained on Jesus, and where the Father declared to him, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. 
Jesus, Luke says, was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be filled or to be full of the Holy Spirit means to be fully yielded to the Spirit of God and to be fully dependent upon the Spirit of God. You must remember that Jesus was fully and completely human, just like we are. The writer of the Hebrews put it this way in chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. Made like his brethren in all things. In other words, Jesus was fully man. He did not he did not merely resemble humankind in some qualities or take on some kind of human form as some have suggested. He was not half God, he was not half human, some kind of creature, or as docetism teaches that he only seemed to be a man. He just took on some nebulous, ethereal human form, but he remained fully God in some kind of human form. But his humanity in his humanity, he was in every way, in all respects, made like you and me. Except for one difference. He had no sin. Jesus suffered hunger like you and I do. He suffered pain. He had human emotions just like you and I. Sorrow, joy, disappointment, all the rest. But when Jesus became a man, he placed the exercise of his divine power, his divine knowledge, under the direction of God the Father. The second chapter of Philippians, verse 7, tells us this, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. For example, in emptying himself, Jesus gave up to the Father his divine attribute of omnipotence, being all-powerful, having all authority. He gave that all up to the Father. He gave up to the Father his omnipresence. Omnipresence is that someone or like God is in all places at all the time. Now Jesus could only be in one place at one time. He gave up his omnipresence to God the Father. And Jesus gave up his omniscience, knowing all things. He gave it up to the Father. In other words, Jesus became completely independent and utterly dependent upon the Father by the way of the Holy Spirit for all things. All things. You might remember that Jesus expressed this when he said in John chapter 5, verse 19, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Nothing of himself. Unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And Jesus also said in John 8, 28, I only do what the Father does. And Jesus said, he only spoke what the Father told him to say. He said in John twelve forty nine, For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. The Father gave him a commandment as what to say and what to speak. And so at his temptation, Jesus knew that he was the Son of God. But he withstood the onslaughts of the devil as a real man, deriving his power to resist by being fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit for his strength. The temptations were real, and Jesus withstood them as a real man who was in every way like us. And we see also here in Luke's account that 
Jesus' temptation was, in fact, arranged by the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, the Gospel writer Mark says that Jesus was thrust into the wilderness by the Spirit. And here in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Jesus was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. He was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus was not only Spirit-filled, he was Spirit-led. He did nothing of his own initiative. He did only what the Father told him to do. He only said what the Father told him to say. And so to be led by the Spirit, and it's also called in Scripture to walk by the Spirit, we are commanded to walk by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit or to walk by the Spirit of God means that we yield to His control. We follow His lead. And we allow the Holy Spirit to exert His influence over us even if the Holy Spirit thrust us into a wilderness experience. Especially if the Holy Spirit thrust us into a wilderness experience. So in verse 2 of Luke chapter 4, we read of Jesus' wilderness experience. Jesus was led around by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness, verse 2, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Notice it says that Jesus being, being tempted for those 40 days. In other words, he was tempted those entire 40 days. He had eaten nothing. And then for all of those 40 days, he was in constant conflict with the devil. It's an intense battle. So intense that Jesus doesn't eat anything for 40 days. It's so intense that during those 40 days, he's not even conscious of being hungry. Because in verse 2, it says that when the days had ended, though 40 days had ended, he became hungry. And so during those 40 days of battle, he had no sense of his hunger. <laughs> Some of us get hungry if we miss lunch. Some of you are listening live this morning. You're, you're hungry already, even though you may have already had breakfast. It's hard to imagine someone going 40 days without food and not getting hungry, not being hungry, unless you understand the intensity of the battle that is going on. Jesus is so focused on the conflict, so focused on the enemy, Satan, so focused on the will of the Father, so focused on doing what is right, that there is no thought of anything human or mundane. It is the conflict and the conflict alone that engages him. But after 40 days of struggle, Jesus, who is man, fully man, feels hungry. And Satan senses that hunger as a vulnerability. He senses that the fact that Jesus is feeling hunger, that Jesus is beginning to feel his mortality, he senses that he if he goes on much longer, Jesus could actually feel like he's going to starve. So Satan moves in for what he thinks is the kill. You see, even though the battle has been intense, any one of us would have faltered weeks ago. We would have gone running for the nearest McDonald's, maybe uh, in the afternoon of day one. I don't know. But Satan has been holding back. So there are three temptations that Satan had devised that are the most brash, the most ruthless, the most clever, and he keeps them until he finds in Christ this moment 
of vulnerability. And the first temptation is in verse 3 of Luke chapter 4, the third verse. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, in two of the temptations, Satan questions Jesus' sonship by saying, If you are the Son of God. If you are really the Son of God, then, then do this. Then do this. The devil here is questioning God's provision and care. If you are the Son of God, why isn't God taking care of you? Satan's premise is that Jesus' sonship should surely mean that God doesn't want him to starve in the desert. So the mighty Son of God could simply turn stone into bread to meet his basic needs under his own power. But Jesus understands that this request, and this is important, Jesus understands that this request, this temptation by Satan, is not a challenge to be strong, but it's a challenge to be independent. Not a challenge to be strong, but a challenge to be independent from the Father. For Jesus to meet his own needs, his own way, apart from the Father. Now, this particular temptation would not be a temptation to any of us because we cannot turn stones into bread. We cannot be tempted to do something that would be impossible for us to do. But Jesus had the ability to turn stones into bread. And Jesus could have done it in an instant. And Jesus' hunger in his stomach screamed, Do it! And the temptation seemed innocent enough. If you have the ability, why not do it? Uh, Jesus, why don't we take a break here for an hour? Why don't you get something to eat? You'll feel a lot better. You'll feel a lot stronger. Well, let's meet back here in an hour. But it was, in fact, a temptation to sin. Because as the incarnate Son of God, Jesus had come to do the will of the Father and nothing else. Nothing else. Jesus had obeyed the Spirit's leading by going into the wilderness to be tempted. He obeyed the Father by being led around by the Spirit and not eating while being tempted. And in his hunger, the Father had not seen fit to provide him with the needed food. And during this temptation, would Jesus see fit to provide for his own needs in his own way apart from the will of God? You see, this is really the essence of every temptation we face. Every temptation we face. We have a crisis. We have an illness. We have a problem. It's a financial need or, or, or a relational need or whatever it is. And every trial we face, the question is this. Am I going to obey and trust God? Am I going to trust God and obey Him? Or am I going to do something else? And by doing that something else, disobey him. The temptation is always to get our own needs met outside of God and his will. We want our own needs met, our own way. We want to use our own resources. We want to use our own plans to accomplish our own objectives. We want to get what we want apart from the will of God. You see, the tests and trials in life are not bad. It's not bad. It's not a sin to be tempted. 
It's not a sin to have a test. It's not a, a sin to have a trial. In fact, our, our test can be sent by God for a specific purpose. The main issue is, what is my response to the test? Do I respond in a way that looks to God to guide me through it? Do I trust Him? How do I respond to personal struggles in my life? Do I get angry? Do I seek to reassert my own control, even when I know I can't control events? Or do I rest in faith and look for God's hand? Jesus was tempted to provide for his material needs apart from the will of Father. And so in verse 4 of Luke chapter 4, Jesus answered the devil's temptation. And as he does in all three temptations, he, he quotes the word of God. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. To see this, turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the eighth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. When Jesus responded to Satan by quoting scripture, he was recalling the events of the Exodus when God led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he quoted Deuteronomy chapter eight. And all of this records how the children of Israel had been hungry in the wilderness. And they grumbled against the Lord. They missed the stew pots of Egypt. But God chose to meet their needs with quail and manna. And in verse 2 of the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses commands the people as they're about to go into the promised land after their wilderness experience for 40 years, they're about to go into the promised land. And Moses says in uh, verse 2 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God, out of the mouth of the Lord. See, God's power is not limited to ordinary means like providing bread. God can support his people with extraordinary means, like manna from heaven and the quail. He can do so if he wishes by just speaking the word. And by quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus is saying, I will not complain, neither will I take matters into my own hands. The Father has not willed to immediately provide bread for me, but I will trust him and his word. Jesus will not be an overreacher when it comes to trusting God and his word. What do you mean by overreacher? Many people overreach by promoting themselves and their supposed faith, and by doing so, they go beyond the parameters of God's word. They name and claim that which God has not promised. They scheme and they plan for their own well-being, thinking that they can muster up enough faith to believe it that God is compelled to provide it. And they call that the word of faith. The word of faith is, 
or overreaching is not faith at all. Faith is trusting God. God is the object of our faith. Trusting in a God who has promised to supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. After Jesus' powerful response from God's word, the the devil tries a different tactic. Back to verse 5 of Luke chapter 4. Verse 5 of the fourth chapter of Luke. We see the second temptation. And the devil led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, literally if you bow down before me, it shall all be yours. Satan presented Christ with a fantasy-like vision of the world. All the worlds and all the kingdoms of the world and all of history stood ready to abandon their idols and accept Christ as Lord. Jesus was made ready to hear the rustling of the world's flags, flying in his honor, the world flying his banner, raising his standard. He could win the world without pain. He could win the world without suffering, without the cross. Israel, the Roman Empire, Persia, Egypt, and all the rest of the empires of the world would open their gates to the new king. This proposal was alliance between the Son of God and Satan. And the temptation was not only to join Satan, but for Jesus to excuse himself from all that lies ahead in his ministry. In other words, he can leave behind the rejection. He can leave behind the suffering. He can leave behind the cross. Forget the cross for quick access to power. Now, even though Satan possesses great authority, he is the God of this age. He is the prince of this world. He really cannot grant this. Yes, for a time, even right now, all the kingdoms of this world, all of them have been given over to Satan. Every one of them, including the United States of America, are given over by God to Satan. And maybe Satan has the authority to give a a nation over to someone else for a time. But ultimately, it's not Satan's to give. Even though he could give it at a certain time, because it's not up to him, because it's up to him who will one day judge the nations. It's up to the one who will one day rule the world with a rod of iron. And of course, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So at the heart of this proposal is a delusion. There's a lie, as are all of Satan's attempts to get us off track. But still again, like turning stones into bread, Satan is tempting Jesus to take a shortcut. A shortcut. Jesus, why wait for that which is ultimately yours? It's going to be yours anyway. Why not now? Why go through all the suffering? Why go through all the pain and death when you can have it now? You can get your needs met now and get the glory and the honor you deserve by aligning yourself politically with the kingdoms of this world. In fact, Jesus, you can be their king now. 
Think of all that you can do. Think of all the, the good you can do. They will wave your flag. They will bear your standard. They will honor and glorify you. Jesus, all you have to do would be to acknowledge Satan and worship. To acknowledge the limited sovereignty Satan has been allowed to exercise on planet Earth. The temptation was to take the easy road to kingship. To take the shortcut. And once again, Jesus faced the devil head on. And once again, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy. We see this in verse 8 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There would be no compromise in Jesus' ministry. There would be no concessions to the power brokers of this world. No seeking the avoidance of suffering. No idolatry. The purposes of God are not going to be achieved through political means. The purposes of God are not achieved through political means. The temptation is to think that God meets our real needs and fulfills His ultimate purposes through the kingdoms of this world, through the governments of this world, through the systems of this world. And all we have to do, the temptation says, is align ourselves to the systems of this world. You know, of all the images that sickened me when the Capitol building was attacked, was that among the Confederate flags, among the Trump banners, the bare-bellied New Age shaman costumes, the anti-Semitic shirts and hoodies, there were signs of Jesus. Jesus saves. Jesus 2020. Make America godly again. Army of God patches on military fatigues. A protester carried the Christian flag onto the Senate floor and leaned it up against another placard which was a quote by Benjamin Franklin. The Christian flag. Those waving Christian flags and banners and raising standards stood shoulder to shoulder with everybody else that was there. And it begs the question, since when did a violent insurgency against our halls of government have anything to do with Jesus or with God. And whatever the reason, whatever the rationale for people who claim the name of Christ to be involved in that rally and carrying Jesus' signs and batters and the Christian cross, the result is still the same. Something of evangelical Christianity today in America is now somehow inexorably linked shoulder to shoulder with violent extremism in the systems of this world. And I'm not saying that was the intent of every protester who went to the Capitol, but that was the result. The Church of Jesus Christ, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we will be dealing with this for years to come when it comes to our evangelical testimony. The standard of the cross was used to try to bring about kingdom or try to bring about political change through a kingdom of this world. 
And the third temptation is in verse 9 of Luke chapter 4. And the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. His foot against a stone. Now more than likely, Satan led Jesus up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point on the Solomon portico that's at the temple, which overlooked the ravine of the Kindron Valley. It was about a 450-foot drop. If you want to put that in today's terms, that's 45 stories, uh, three-fourths the height of the uh, of, uh I can't think of the building, the, the building in New York City. You know, sometimes we have a brain freeze there. And the ancient historian remarked that if anyone looked down, his eyes would grow dizzy looking down, not able to reach so vast a height. In other words, you can't focus on what's down below it so high. And having seen Jesus vanquish the first two quotations, temptations by quoting scripture, Satan now quotes it himself for his own purpose. Psalm 91, from which the devil quoted, was a famous wisdom psalm that celebrated the Lord's defense of the faithful, for whom he promised angelic protection. Hey, Jesus, the devil is saying, if you're going to trust God's word and obey him, if you're going to trust God's word and, and obey him, then you are committed to obey this because it's in God's word. After all, this is what God's word says. Throw yourself off. Just take a leap. Take a leap of faith. And when he saves you, God saves you by using his angels to, to grab you and hold you up, you, and you don't even stub your toe, everyone will know that you are the Messiah. And Jesus answers by quoting Deuteronomy 6. That refers to the time that the Israelites grumbled against God in the wilderness because they had no water. Verse 12, Jesus responds. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Even the various highest and best ends do not justify operating contrary to God's will. So let's turn back to that. Exodus chapter 17. 17th chapter of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 17, beginning at uh, verse 1, the Israelites in the wilderness tested God by complaining about his provision, like they did when they didn't have anything to eat. Now they complain about his provision when God provided water by having Moses strike a rock. Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall take, strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa, that means test, and Meribah, which means quarrel and strife. So in other words, he named the place test and quarrel because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now Israel's reaction might seem perfectly reasonable. Given the lack of water, anyone's natural reaction would be to worry and, and probably to complain as well and probably to blame the leadership, whoever they are. We blame governors and presidents and everybody today with what's going on in the pandemic. That, that reaction is normal. But Israel had much evidence from the past that God was powerful and trustworthy. Israel had great promises that the future would be wonderful. So why was the present situation so worrisome for him? Because at the heart, the people did not trust God. They gave no thought to what God had done in the past, nor what he had promised to do in the future. They only thought about their lack of water now. And this helps us to understand what putting God to the test means. Each Israelite looked around at the bleak wilderness and the situation around them and said, Why has God brought me here? Clearly to them, God was not to be trusted. Look at the scary and dangerous place to which he has brought them. And they were thinking, however, if God were to apologize for bringing us here and, and come through with some water, we would be willing to forgive him and to follow him again. And notice how verse 7, Exodus chapter 17 puts it. They tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? the lack of water really caused them to question whether the Lord was really on their side, if he was really among them working on their behalf. All that the Lord had done in the past did not count. The ten plagues of Egypt by which they were, were set free, the crossing of the Red Sea, and one miracle after another by this time. All that he had promised to do in the future also did not count. What counted to them was the frightening present. Could God really be there? He couldn't really be powerful and trustworthy if he, would, was to, if he brought them into this barren wilderness. But the question should have been settled already. God is there. He is powerful. He is loving. Instead, each new difficulty caused Israel to question God's power and goodness. So they tested God by making him prove his faithfulness all over again. God, if you are really faithful and you really care with us, and if you are really with us, you would do this one thing for us. Give us some water. And Jesus was facing the same kind of situation Israel faced in the wilderness. Jesus' present circumstances were difficult. 
Certainly, Jesus faced the real temptation to question the Father's goodness. Jesus faced the same question Israel had faced. Why has God brought me here? And the temptation was potentially attractive. On the surface, jumping off the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, that high point on Solomon's portico, seems like a, a powerful act of faith. Certainly, nobody would jump unless he truly trusted God to catch him. Very few of us would have the faith and courage to do it, but Jesus had such faith and courage. And what a powerful demonstration of faith jumping off the temple would have been. But Jesus knew that jumping off the temple would not demonstrate faith. Instead, it would be a gross act of unbelief. You see, God hadn't asked him to jump off the temple. To jump off the temple would not be obedience, it would be presumption. It would be presumption. And why would Jesus even want to jump off the pinnacle of the temple? It's because it would force God's hand. The message is clear. You test the Lord when you attempt to force God to act. God, if you really love me, if you really care for me, you will do this one thing, whatever that is. And that message is essential for us today. Willful swan dives test the Lord because it would make the Father prove that he was indeed on Jesus' side. Things were looking bleak for Jesus at the moment. Tempting him to force the Father to send a a legion of angels to demand that God prove again that he was his beloved son was testing God. Like Israel in the wilderness, Jesus would have been asking the question, is God with me or not? But Jesus knew that God was with him. He didn't need to prove it to himself. He didn't need to prove it to Satan. He didn't need to prove it to anyone else. God had proven himself in the past to Jesus. He had made great promises for the future for Jesus. And Jesus could look at his difficult present circumstances and say, the Father has nothing to prove to me. The Father has nothing to prove to me. And here is the key to how Jesus resisted temptation and how we can resist it as well. Jesus chose to live in absolute submission to the will of God in every temptation. Jesus' sole desire was to do what the Father commanded him to do. Nothing else and nothing more. If this was true of Jesus in his wilderness experience and his anti-Eden, how much more is it true for us by God's adopted, as God's adopted children in our wilderness, in our world, which is anti-God. Jesus would later say to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So three very brief short points here. We are to live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We are to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We are to worship our Lord God and serve Him only. And we must never put our Lord to the test. And this is not something you or I can do on our own. Not at all. That's not the point. 
This is done by being filled by the Spirit of God and being led by the Spirit of God. Completely and totally yielding ourselves to God in complete submission to Him. And being utterly and totally dependent upon Him in all things and for all things. We used to ask the question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And then we have that problem. We go, well, I can't do what Jesus does. But we can do this one thing as it's been laid out here. We can yield ourselves totally and completely to God. We can be totally and utterly dependent upon Him and all things. And through His Holy Spirit, He will give us His power to resist temptation and do His will. That we can do through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we go through the things that we face today, whether it's the pandemic or it's the civil unrest and whatever it is that we're facing in our country, Lord, right now, I thank you that as believers in Jesus Christ who have received him for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord, you have given us your Holy Spirit, Father. Father, I pray that uh, when we face those temptations that want to cause us to disobey you or go in a direction or do something that you would not want us to do, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would give us that check in our spirit at that very moment, Lord, that we would come and turn to you and seek your face and seek your will, Father, and know that we can have your deliverance from the temptations and trials that we face in life. And Father, we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.